This episode of Armchair Explorer is brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. With seven drive modes, the Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. And epic journeys is what we're all about. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Hey guys, welcome to the Armchair Explorer, where the world's greatest adventurers tell their best story from the road. I'm Aaron Miller, I'm a travel writer, and we've got a really interesting story for you today. We're going to go to the Gobi Desert in Mongolia to track grizzly bears. That's right, there are actually grizzly bears in Mongolia. They're called Gobi grizzlies. There's only a handful left in the world, and until quite recently, almost no one knew they even existed. But we do, and we're going to go and find them. Are you ready? Let's go. Taking us on this adventure is legendary biologist, naturalist, and wildlife reporter Doug Chadwick. He's written close to 50 articles for National Geographic, among hundreds of others, and 14 books about wildlife conservation all over the world. He is a self-proclaimed bear junkie, especially grizzlies. And he thought that he knew every species on the planet. That is until he heard about the Gobi grizzly, one of the rarest and most endangered, but also fascinating animals on the planet. And as soon as he did, he dropped everything to find out more and help save this remarkable species. This is a story about that adventure. It's a story about one of the most beautiful but harsh landscapes on Earth, the Gobi Desert. But it's more than that, too. Because through this adventure and others, Doug has developed a new theory of nature, an entirely new paradigm and way of looking at ourselves and the world around us. And it's going to blow your mind. And we're going to get into that later in the show. But if this episode inspires you to find out more, then please go and check out the book. It's called Four Fifths, A Grizzly, A New Perspective on Nature That Might Just Save Us All. It's fascinating, and the photographs in it are worth it alone. It's an absolutely gorgeous book. It's the kind of book that you just want to have around and dip into on a Sunday afternoon, preferably with a glass of juggernaut wine, perhaps. You can find it on Amazon and on Patagonia.com, who are the publishers. And of course, I'll also link to it on the episode page of the website. You can also buy the book of this adventure, which is called Tracking Gobi Grizzlies, Surviving in the Back of the Back of Beyond. So we're just about to get going. But before we do, please remember, if you're enjoying the show, please help by spreading the word. Tell a friend, post about it on social media, hit that follow button, hit that glowing five-star review. It really does make a huge difference. So thank you for anything that you can do. The social media is at Armchair Explorer Podcast across Instagram and Facebook. I would love to hang out there. The website is armchair-explorer.com where you can find background information on each episode and book trips inspired by the show as well as sign up for that newsletter too so please do come and visit if you like travel and adventure we're going to get on well but don't worry about that right now because the wind is blowing in the land of the eternal blue sky and somewhere out there is one of the last goby grizzlies on the planet and we're going to find them but first we have to start where we're going to finish not looking outwards at the big animals like bears but looking inwards at the microscopic universe all around us and within us too. Because that's what this is really all about. And it started for Doug when he was 10 years old and his father 
gave him a microscope. I got addicted to this world I had never imagined before, never been able to see before. And so I would bounce back and forth between my normal life of, you know, going out with my buddies and getting a game together at the nearest ball field and then going back and turning into this geek lost in microland. Who knew that a drop of pond water had more life than you had seen among all the big creatures and plants, you know, in your whole field of view? And who knew what your own blood looked like? Or, you know, you'd take a swab from your mouth and put it in there and go, oh my God, there's more, more little people in here than there are in the city where I live. And so it was addictive, but more importantly, I didn't do it because I felt under an obligation to be a a learner and a student. I just was drawn on by the fascination. And that kind of exploration, I never forgot. He writes in the book, Four Fifths of Grizzly, about some of the discoveries he made hiding in his attic as a 10-year-old kid. A piece of mold and fruit became storybook forests and lollipop trees, a filament of pollen, a galaxy of fertile sun-colored spheres. The micro-world, the world that is invisible to us, yet permeates every aspect of our life and sustains us, suddenly became illuminated. And in that microcosm, the world expanded too. Not outwards, but inwards, until the whole universe was infinitely larger and more amazing than he could have ever imagined. He never forgot that world. But he did get obsessed with something larger too. A lot larger and then dedicated his life to studying them. And that's what this adventure is about. But it's also about that microscope, because the more Doug studied the macrocosm of nature, the big critters, as he calls them, the more he realized how inseparable they are, how inseparable we are, from that micro world he first discovered as a kid. And those two worlds, those two visions of nature, as we'll see, began to mesh together into a new way of seeing ourselves, not as individuals, but as ecosystems unto ourselves, worlds unto ourselves, a universe in every single cell of our body. But first, grizzly bears. I'm a bear junkie. I've studied them here in Montana. I found them on the top of the Himalayas, the Himalayan brown bear. Why do I do this? I don't know. I think it's because... I want to know not only about the bears, but I want to know how they can live with people. This is an animal with the biggest brain of any carnivore relative to body weight, despite that big weight. These are very smart, long-lived creatures. But also, it's this indomitable strength and force. It's still this damn-your-fences critter. Some of them be on a mountainside, a helicopter goes over, and they run like crazy. Some of them rear up, and want to swat that thing out of the sky and they roar at it. And it's just nature at its strongest and fiercest and also smartest. Doug has studied grizzly bears, watched them, admired them, and written about them his entire life. So unsurprisingly, he has some pretty good bear stories. They're not what you might think. He starts his book, Tracking Gobi Grizzlies, with a scene from his earlier life. He lived in a log cabin off-grid in Montana, and he would hike into the mountains each day to watch bears. He found them frolicking in meadows on summer days. That's his actual words, swinging its head and zigzagging this way and that, as we might if we were having the time of our life picking berries in summer meadows too. He found them splashing in icy rivers like kids to cool off, repeatedly sliding down snowy slopes on their bellies just for fun. 
The bears he discovered, although ferocious, although wild and damn your fences, as they should be, he also found them to be, in more ways than we might imagine, just like us. Playful, loving, protective, adaptive, smart, and determined to survive. He thought he'd seen it all. But then, out of the blue, while on assignment for National Geographic, tracking snow leopards in the Himalayas, he heard something that at first he couldn't quite believe was true. I was going from village to village where the story was, if you'd just been here yesterday, the snow leopard came in and killed three goats. Anyway, I'm tracking them up on the border of Kazakhstan and Russia and Mongolia. And I found some turned over earth and diggings. And I said, oh, are these brown bears? Because I knew they were brown bears up on the Russian border. And it turned out it was wild boars. But anyway, we got to talking about bears. And while we're up on a steep slope, you know, tracking snow leopards, and my interpreter said, well, but we have another kind of bear. Okay, I didn't know that. Where are these bears? They're down in the Gobi Desert. What kind of bear lives in the Gobi Desert? I don't even know how a lizard lives there. And she said, well, they're Gobi bears, and they are kind of golden colored, and there are very few left, but they live right out in the center of the desert in some dry mountain ranges with oases. At that point, I'm thinking we've got a serious communication problem. I knew there was something wrong with this picture. And anyway, it turned out her father was the director of a special reserve in the Gobi Desert, and he had studied these bears, and they were real. Here's a man who has spent his entire life studying bears, one of the world's foremost experts, and even he didn't know of the Gobi Bear's existence. But perhaps that's not as surprising as it sounds. The Gobi Grizzly, the Mazalai as they're known here, are one of the rarest and most endangered animals on the planet. Less than 50 exist in the world today, none in captivity. And they exist in the absolutely vast and bleak and barren landscape of the Gobi Desert, one of the wildest, most inhospitable and least inhabited places on the planet. That something as large as a bear could survive here, in an ecosystem completely alien to the one in which brown bears exist elsewhere in the world, was a puzzle to Doug, a puzzle that might hold clues to the survival of the species here, elsewhere, and even to our own chances of adapting to an increasingly arid world. A puzzle he just couldn't resist. He vowed then and there to come back. And four years later, he got his chance. Along with a group of researchers, he flew to Ulaanbaatar, the capital of Mongolia, met up with a team of Mongolian guides and rangers, and set out into the wilderness in search of the world's most elusive bear. Finding them wasn't going to be easy. The Gobi Desert is 500,000 square miles, about three times the size of California. And at the time, there was thought to be only about 30 bears left. But camp life and Mongolia itself was pretty amazing too. Everyone was chipping in, you know, helping prepare food, do the other camp chores, get wood. And we're usually ensconced in a yurt of some kind. Sometimes it would be a classic year made out of yak skins or something else. But often where we were built of stone because any kind of fabric can't withstand those winds and constant chafing from dust and aren't going to last long. So we're in an underground yurt. 
dug out of the side of a rocky ledge. And we've got these camel spiders about like this. They just look so alien and you don't want to get a bite. And you've got camel ticks, which are that big instead of little tiny ticks. But otherwise, it's pretty nice. Yeah, other than the giant blood-sucking ticks and alien spiders from hell, it was pretty nice. And by the way, when he says that big, he's making his hands as big as your thumb, which for something that burrows into your skin is big enough. And the spiders, yeah, they're a lot bigger than that. And the food, well, that wasn't much better either. We've got a big communal pot in the middle, and every night and every lunchtime and every morning, you've got what's left of the goat meat, which, you know, after four weeks in camp with no refrigeration, you try to cut out the green parts and throw it in the pot, and then everyone just digs in. It's communal eating, and people are sharing bowls and, you know, grabbing stuff. And, you know, it took a while for a Westerner like me to adjust to these big Mongolian guys who, you know, in the days of Genghis, you would not want to have met any of them, you know, (laughs) when you came out from your castle to defend (laughs) against the hordes. Really tough guys. And one will put his head on another guy's lap. They always got their arms around somebody's shoulder. They're singing traditional songs. And it was just delightful. It was such a nice environment. And you realize the strength of the community They all grew up in herding communities, and their home looked a lot like where we were. And they were perfectly at ease in one of the toughest environments I've ever been in. Their favorite sport in Mongolia is wrestling. And so these same guys would be, it was like watching a bullfight outside of the yurt. You know, they're in the dust and throwing each other down on rocks and all that. And the next minute they're over, I mean, I don't want to say cuddling, but it's sort of a we, it's not I. I love that. Here's these giant sons of Genghis beating the absolute crap out of each other and then popping back to the yurt after for a little cuddle. And he's right. In that culture where community and kinship is essential to survival, it is we, not I. And so that affection is a natural part of that bond. Plus the vodka probably helped a little too. Mongolians are not shy of a drop or two of vodka and most evenings would finish with a few glasses and songs. It was a waiting game. They had live traps set up in locations where they thought the bears might be. Nothing that would hurt them, of course, just big shipping containers with food in them, basically. But on average, a research team might catch two bears an entire summer season. Scouts were sent out looking for signs, tracks, nothing. They waited, they tended to camp, wrestled, drank vodka, fought off giant ticks. And then one morning... A motorcycle roared into camp and the driver, a local ranger with dark, easy rider shades on called Poojie, had a big smile on his face. There was a real live Gobi Grizzly in one of their traps. The team raced into action. It's always magic to get your hands on an unfamiliar creature and feel its warmth and, you know, feel the dampness of its mouth, its nose and all that. But there's the other part of science where, you know, we're trapping them because we can't save an animal nobody knows anything about. What are their daily movements? What are they eating? What can we possibly improve or provide to get these guys through? It's just a steel trap, not a trap like, you know, people think of, a jawed trap. It's a box and the door slides down. And then you're working through a small hole and you're trying to jab it with a needle. 
to inject a drug and then you're hauling this limp thing out and covering its eyes so it won't get exposed to light because it can't close them and it's in a kind of catatonic state. And it gets hard to imagine this animal out in that world. But at the same time, it's finally become truly real because you get your hand buried in that fur. Gobi bears have this strange white underfur, like polar bear colored. And as I'm going through it, I'm having this fur expedition, trying to figure out what makes this animal tick. It was a remarkable moment. Doug had trapped and collared grizzlies in the Rockies for decades. That process wasn't unusual to him. But this was the moment he'd been waiting for, waiting since the time he'd first heard about them, this strange bear those many years ago in the Himalayas, and vowed to come here and find them for himself. And now he had his hands on her, literally. He writes, As I ran my fingers over the blunt fangs and ground-down molars, she growled as she exhaled. When her blindfold slipped off, I bent down to readjust it and felt her breath moisten my skin. Her body gave off all kinds of fragrances, some musty, some sharp, others rich and gamey, and the sum of them together smelled sweet. It was their first bear. They called her Altan, the Golden. And it was a great sign. The desert had been kind to them. But the desert's mood could shift in an instant. Because just a few days later, on one of their night patrols, they were hit out of the blue by one of the Gobi's most destructive and terrifying occurrences. An enormous sandstorm. This episode of Armchair Explorer is presented by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. From muddy jungle paths and snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has the capability to take you to some of the most epic destinations on Earth. And Pathfinder, that's a pretty cool name, isn't it? Because that's also what this show is all about. Exploring, getting off trail, having adventures, finding your own path and living life to the fullest. Sound like you? Yep, sounds like me too. Which is why I'm so excited to partner with Nissan. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has seven drive modes, available intelligent 4x4. It's got the best towing capacity in its class, up to 6,000 pounds. So go ahead and bring all that gear with you and lots more. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder, a vehicle built for adventures everywhere. So thanks again to Nissan for sponsoring this episode and for the reminder to chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures and enjoy the ride along the way. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. We were coming down off a place where some illegal miners had made their way into Gobi Bear territory and they left a messy camp as people do and we were worried the bears would come in and get shot. By that time it's dusk going on night and we're starting to feel a stronger wind, which is not unusual in the Gobi, it blows all spring long especially. But it got stronger and when you have a headlight, you know how you see every particle in the air in front of you and you can't believe you're breathing? It just got thicker and thicker, pile in the car. And I don't know where I am as usual. I've been driving for hours over trackless terrain and Russian four-wheel drive van. And we head back and it's night, but I'd never seen such a dark night. And it got darker 
and we couldn't find our tracks. So we couldn't figure out how we got to where we were or much less how we were going to get back. And the air temperature dropped probably 20 to 30 degrees Fahrenheit. And it just had this ominous feel. And there's this black tsunami coming in. That's what's scary about sandstorms and dust storms is they just come out of nowhere and they roll in like a tsunami. And all I could do was hunker down and, you know, take my shirt off and put it over my head. It was this kind of breathing space and hope this wasn't going to be a really long one. And I was also starting to freeze to death because that wind was really cold. I thought, how long does this last? How many days might we be here? Who's got food? And at that point, I just throw up my hands. I don't know where I am. I don't speak the language. I don't know what the guys around me are saying to each other, but their faces look pretty grim. And that's when I started to worry because we were with some rangers who work in this area and know it and I thought could survive pretty much anything. But when they look really nervous, it's like flying in a bush plane and your pilot looks scared. <laughs> okay, I've been scared for a while, but he's scared. It's not good. That's kind of how I felt. And he was right. Dust storms in the Gobi Desert can bury you alive. It turned day into night. The air came at us, he writes, like a reddish-brown landslide, swirling in the headlamps, crashing relentlessly against the front of the van. We were exposed to the teeth of an exceptionally strong blow on an enormous plane with no place to hide from the furious blackness and no idea of where we were or how we were going to get unlost. After driving around for hours in near zero visibility, starting to count their food and water, some storms can blow for days and they were unprepared. They saw a light flickering in the distance. It was Pooji, the scout who had found their first bear, and he had stood outside their camp, wrapped in protective clothing, all night, waving a torch to light their way home. But despite the dangers, there were moments of sublime beauty too especially in the early dawn hours when he would leave his tent and go exploring for hours before anyone else woke up, just him, the desert, and nothing else for as far as he could see. I knew there were no people for at least 100 miles in any direction. And there was an edge to it because in a desert like that, I was always worried about getting lost. It was wonderful to just take off and go, but pretty soon I'm in this labyrinth of canyons and stone structures, and then the wind picks up and it starts to make strange noises going through the hoodoos, you know, the highly eroded rocks with holes in them and that sort of thing. And it was sort of like being on planet Earth, but it might have been another planet. It's that desert beauty that is harsh. It's a physical beauty that has to do with the for me, a big part of it is the fact that it's just you. There's nobody else around. And so your focus is entirely on nature and not as usual. Who am I? What do people think of me? Am I properly dressed? All the monkey brain stuff. It's just you and that world. It's stepping across a time barrier so the modern world's nowhere in sight and you know what time of day it is from your watch, but you don't know which century or which millennium you're in. You have nothing to distract your focus from that landscape. I had two to three hours every morning of this and it was just an immersion in planet Earth. Whenever I wandered alone and on foot, he writes, I found myself under the spell of two sensations aroused and amplified by the desert. 
The first was one of absolute exposure to the sun and eternal blue sky, to vast, uncluttered vistas of earth, to more stars than I had ever seen. The second sensation was of the desert's profound stillness. Nothing moved out there save the occasional dust devil or wisp of a cloud, and the absence of motion was matched with an absence of sound. If you make a point of listening to the Gobi wind, you can nearly always hear it whispering, he said. When that wind that had been blowing around you suddenly idles, the depth of the silence would knock you to your knees. I felt on the edge of being lost to the world, and because of that, I felt free. It wasn't long before the team got word that another bear had been spotted in a trap. This one had a name, Bort, the first wife of Genghis Khan, the Queen of Queens she was named after. She'd been collared a few years previously, weighing then a meagre 163 pounds. Now, she had dropped to 128, and she needed somehow to find the strength to do more with less, because Bort had become a mother. We were trapping females that weighed 150 pounds and had a cub and were lactating. And we didn't know where the cub was. We wanted to get this female collared and and out and back to her cub if she had one or didn't know if she had a cub but lost it. There are wolves there and there are snow leopards and they'll take a cub. These bears are in a wildlife community. And this is an animal when I got my hand on her That, more than anything, put it in perspective. Like, this is the future of the species. The females, we only knew of maybe 10, 8 to 10 in this population. If they're not having cubs, the prognosis is grim. And she was so small, and she was so delicate, as it were, but just fragile. And yet, while one of the researchers was straddling her and putting the final bolt on the radio collar, she came out of her drug early. And so for a little while, he was riding this bear. <laughs> and, and, and the rest of us are, you know, scattering to the side. The first thing she did was we had an automatic camera set up that the photographer was operating from a distance. And she heard the click. And she went over and ate the camera. Because <laughs> when these bears come out of the drug, they are pissed off. And so, you know, it went from all oh, this poor thing to... Go, you go, baby. You got what it takes to keep this species alive. Good luck to you. It started as the most harrowing encounter of the trip, the smallest adult grizzly probably in the world on the edge of survival, fending for a cub that if the species are to be saved, could not afford to be lost. But it ended with hope, because despite her size and weakness, she hadn't lost an ounce of her toughness as that poor researcher and photographer found out. If anyone could survive the heat and cold and thirst and sandstorms of the Gobi, it was Bort and her little cub. Doug now had enough material to write his piece for National Geographic, which would become a centerpiece for gaining more awareness and hopefully more funding for the plight of these bears. But he couldn't leave Mongolia without one last thing. I can't say it was a tough climb. It certainly wasn't a technical climb. It was a slog. But all the way there, we were inside of wild asses and wild camels. We could see where the ibex were. And we worked our way up there. took a number of hours. But when we got up top, the entire rock formation up there was wrapped in blue ribbons and some pictographs. 
blue, blue, blue. That's the sacred color. And it felt that way. The Mongolians would throw milk to the winds and give offerings to the sky and to all of nature because they feel that there's a spirit that animates everything, the rocks, the landforms, the animals. I aspire to feel like that. It's a blessing to be alive, and you appreciate it more in places like the Gobi. We're looking over all the way into China from there and looking at the vastness of the desert, the other directions, and it's just endless series of hills, ridges, valleys, without, again, any mark of people. And the wind is blowing by, and their growth got a little lusher as we went up with each 100-foot gain of elevation because slightly more precipitation grew up there. So it was a kind of oasis in the sky, and everyone grew quiet. It's a well-known sacred peak in that area, and all I can say is that knowing that maybe is what made me feel that way, but other mountaintops have done the same. And this one had a special resonance because I, I had that hawk or eagle's eye view of the landscape we were all operating in and the bears were surviving in. It was overwhelming. The mountain they climbed is called Sagan Borgut. It's one of Mongolia's most sacred peaks. And he writes of that mountain peak, power does coalesce up there, whether you think of it as a supernatural thing or a mixture of super-strength winds and weather, the sort of terrain and views that make mere mortals feel all-seeing once they reach those heights. Here, before him, was the Mazalais realm, their refuge from the crowded worlds over the horizon. He says, The revered eternal blue sky enveloped us above and on all sides. The landscape seemed to come rushing in from all directions like a colossal shout. Modern Mongolians hold this mountaintop sacred, and the Stone Age people who came before them probably did as well. Whatever your origins, whatever you believe, you would have to own a shriveled soul to rest upon this summit and not understand why. Doug doesn't want to give us false hope, and I respect that. There are less than 50 Gobi bears left in the world, and they're trying to survive in one of the most harshest environments on Earth. But though our actions, our tangible actions to save them and other species, are of course the bottom line. What is work in the Gobi Desert? What that sacred mountaintop taught him? What his life's work has led him to? Is that perhaps the biggest hope of all, at its most fundamental level, lies within ourselves, in changing our entire paradigm of who we are and of what our relationship to the natural world is. 90% of the living weight of vertebrates on the planet consists of humans and their livestock. And if you have a pie chart, there's a little slice like this in the circle, and that's all the wild animals left. So how we think of nature is very, very important. Being a naturalist and thinking and caring about nature is not an option. You're made from nature. You are shaped by nature through millions of years, and you are related to all these wondrous animals that are disappearing out there. Plus, they build the ecosystems that support us. We've spent an awful lot of time as societies through philosophy, religion, stories, you know, our cultural myths, building this big barrier between us and all the rest of the living world. And we have to bust that down. Nature is in us and part of us, and we can't live without it. 
But Doug's not just saying that in a poetic way. He's not asking you to believe it because it sounds good or it feels right or it makes a great poster. He has hard science to prove it to you. And that's what the book Four Fifths of Grizzly is all about. But in order for him to truly discover that, to find that proof, he had to come full circle. He had to go back to the microscope his dad gave him when he was 10 years old. I recently went back to the micro world to learn more about it because I realized all those big things I'm looking at are filled with and depend upon all kinds of the little things. I'm 7% of bacterium. 8% of the human genome is from viral bits and pieces picked up over the millions of years of evolution of hominids and our ancestors. I have 20-some percent of my genes in common with worms, 18% with baker's yeast. I'm 24% wine grape. We have, you know, thousands of species and 30 trillion individual little microbes in our body and on our body. Most of the DNA we carry, uh, probably 98% of it is microbial. Every cell of every creature on Earth larger than a bacterium are powered by these little organelles called mitochondria. Without my mitochondria, without my bacterial buddies, I die. Everything is a partnership. They're really not an individual organism. Our DNA, the blueprint for human beings itself, is not like a unique piece of art created separate and unlike every other living thing on Earth. We are drawn from the same brush. That doesn't diminish who we are. That makes us more than who we are. In a very real sense, we, like every other living thing, holds the entire biosphere within us. And it goes further than DNA too. Close to a thousand different species inhabit your mouth. Several thousand species dwell within your digestive tract. Species coat your skin, line your pores, cling to your hairs. And many of those perform essential functions we couldn't survive without. Microbes in our stomach break down foods that we couldn't otherwise digest. They manufacture vitamins and nutrients that we need and can't get from anywhere else. Cutting-edge research is showing that the bacteria in our gut actually produces hormones that influence our mood and activities. This universe of microscopic beings affects our health and perhaps even our thoughts themselves. And alongside those beings living within us are these organelles, these microchondria, even smaller microscopic life, which generates the energy and chemical reactions and powers every single aspect of our life from hiking up mountains to processing the sound of my voice now as it goes through your ear. Taken together, Doug writes, the invisible multitudes on and in us redefine every person as a kind of compound creature, an organism that in reality is a combination of organisms interwoven in more ways than we have yet found words to acknowledge. This is what makes us more than just human. This is our greater self. You are, my friend, are a symbiont. You're a little ecosystem under yourself, and so is every character you know on the street, and every <laughs> the good ones and the bad ones, and so is every creature that we look at. And that's what makes nature thrive. That's what makes it so vital and dynamic. That's the thing about being a naturalist is there's no end to it. The more you look, the more you find. 
And to me, that's the ultimate exploration and the ultimate adventure. At the end of the book, at the end of the adventure, this is what Doug writes. When you see nature falling to pieces, start trying to put some parts back together. Travel, hike, climb, get dirty, fall in love, have fun, rest, make some money, call your mom, take care of yourself, do all of that. But for goodness sake, keep working to fix what we've broken. That's why Doug travels to the Gobi Desert to try and save a species that is perhaps already past saving. Because we are four-fifths a grizzly. Because in saving them, we also save ourselves. Thank you, Doug. Thank you for inspiring us with this adventure and with your new vision of nature. It blew my mind, and I hope it did you guys too. The new book is called Four-Fifths a Grizzly, a new perspective on nature that might just save us all. He's a great writer. There's amazing imagery in it and loads more mind-blowing facts and stories in detail. I think you'll love it. Just search it up on Amazon or go to patagonia.com. The book of this adventure, Tracking Gobi Grizzlies, is available from there too. So do check that out. I also want to give a big shout out to Mike Cumber, aka The Sweet Chap, who's helped out with some sound editing on this episode. Mike's an incredible artist and musician and producer. The song that opens every single episode is called Rummage. It's his track. It's one of my favorite songs. And it's an honor to have that open every show. So thank you, Mike. And please do go and check out The Sweet Chap on Spotify, on SoundCloud, Facebook, on wherever you find your music. You won't be disappointed. He's one of my favorite artists. Please go and check it out, The Sweet Chap. Last but in no ways least, thank you to you guys for listening and being a part of this community. Keep exploring inwards and outwards, because the more we look for wonder in the world, the more the wonder of the world becomes a part of who we are. Dare to be truly alive.